Futurecast. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. One of the skills that separates truly great leaders from the rest is their ability to make a decision. In this episode, I'm going to break down a framework and share examples that will help you become a stronger decision maker. And we're going to do that by watching the ninth episode of the sixth season of The Next Generation, The Quality of Life. We start off with a poker game. We are the poker players. This was such a cool thing they did in TNG. This time it's just Riker, Worf, LaForge, and Crusher playing. They're talking about beards, and honestly, it's pretty great. Quick behind the scenes, LeVar Burton, who plays Geordi LaForge, got married around this time, and he wanted a beard for that, so they allowed his character to wear one. This game, the poker game, literally does nothing but fill up time in this episode, but it makes a powerful point on perceptions and how gender biases are influenced by them. Beard is an ancient and proud tradition. Mm. Some of the most distinguished men in history have worn beards, Doctor. Sure, and of course women can't grow beards. It's a fun scene and really shows the friendship the crew has. The Enterprise is checking out a new mining technology. Picard is responsible for making a recommendation to the Federation as to whether or not they should adopt it. It's not clear if the project to develop this is private or government funded, but we get a hint that generally makes me think that this is probably a publicly funded effort. So far, the project has been fraught with problems and is well behind schedule. LaForge is assigned to inspect the technology and inform Picard's decision. The lead scientist, Dr. Farallon, is passionate about this technology. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm so passionate about it, and it's what I do. She understands it looks like the project is failing, but she has a ton of confidence that it's going to be successful. Some of this confidence comes from a new tool that she's developed. This is an exocomp. They're floaty little robots that have a micro-replicator attached to them so they can generate whatever tool they need to solve a problem. And they are wildly effective. I have successfully completed 14 separate tasks with this exocomp in the past hour. I estimate it would take two people nine hours to complete the same tasks. And it almost seems Dr. Farallon's more passionate about rolling these out than getting the mining tech implemented. She proposes to Captain Picard that she be allowed to use them to bring the mining tech to full capabilities within the timeline. After conferring with LaForge and Data, he agrees to let her use the exocomps, but asks Data to assist her. During their work, Data observes unexpected behavior from the exocomp. It left an access tunnel before doing its job, before finishing its task. Seconds later, a plasma burst explodes in the tunnel. Data starts digging into the unit, and he learns that... Sometimes an exocomp starts forming large numbers of new pathways, totally at random. Dr. Farallon sees this as a defect. While Data believes it indicates there's something more going on here. Are you implying the exocomp exhibited some form of self-preservation? Data continues his investigation. The exocomp initiated a self-repair routine two hours after the explosion. Convinced that it was trying to protect itself, he visits a friend, 
and expert, Dr. Crusher, and he asks, What is the definition of life? She does her best to tackle this question with him and starts trying to define it scientifically. Life is something that consumes food, grows, adapts to its surroundings, and reproduces. Data asks a brilliant follow-up question. What about fire? Like, it does all these things, but it's not considered alive. She masterfully pivots and answers the question with a thought to think on. We struggle all of our lives to learn what life is, but it's the struggle that's important. That's what helps us define our place in the universe. He takes this back and further tests his hypothesis. But before he does that, Doctor, I must ask you to stop using the exocomps. They might be alive. And if that is even a possibility, he has a moral responsibility and a legal one through the Federation to protect them. Picard calls the senior staff and Dr. Farallon together to discuss. They determine that more testing is necessary and weirdly decide the best way to do this is to put it in a life-threatening situation again to see if it protects itself. They create a simulated scenario and the exocomp fails to protect itself. I've completed 34 additional tests and the results have been the same in each of them. While he and Dr. Crusher are talking about it though, the exocomp returns on its own and Data realizes that it knew the situation was simulated. It fixed the real mechanical problem and fixed the simulated one as well. It's alive! Picard, in the meantime, is personally inspecting the mining tech. A power overload messes everything up and a radiation surge hits the area. Picard and LaForge are able to evacuate most everyone except for one scientist that ended up being killed and the two of them, they didn't make the transport window either. They're trapped and they're not going to make it. The exocomps could go in, possibly solve the problem, but Data refuses to allow it. Convinced they're alive, he risks his career to ensure that they have a choice. They have a say in what happens to them. If you don't do it, I will relieve you of duty. That is your prerogative, sir. After much discussion, they come up with a way to basically ask them, and they agree. They beam over and fix the issue enough to beam Picard and LaForge back over. They try to extract the exocomps, but only two of the three get out. It's the only way to save the other two. Turns out, one decided to sacrifice itself to save the others. The exocomps are heroes. Picard decides not to recommend the technology at this time. For those reasons, I'm out. After Dr. Farallon returns to her work, Data explains why he put his career and Picard's life on the line for the exocomps. And this, this is an incredible moment. When my own status as a living being was in question, you fought to protect my rights. And for that, I will always be grateful. The exocomps had no such advocate. This calls back to the epic episode, Measure of a Man, where Data's sentience was proven in a courtroom. This was a perfect way to call that back and to show the impact that that moment had on Data. There's been a lot to come out of this episode in the last few years. Exocomps don't only come back in Lower Decks, but one even joins Starfleet. One of the many dangling threads that that show picked up on and elaborated. As an episode, this one is a great idea that touches on some awesome stuff. We get the realization of so much of Data's journey of self-discovery. It is so good. There are some weird interpersonal conflicts that don't really add anything to the story, but hey, 
All in all, this is early 90s sci-fi at its peak. Come to Quark's Crush's Fun. Come right now. Go, Quark. Run! I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. To quote my inner Seinfeld, what's the deal with the poker scene and the beard talk? Like that happened and it went nowhere. They made a bet in that scene that if Dr. Crusher won the hand, Riker, Geordi, and Worf would all shave their beards. But if she lost, she'd dye her hair brunette. And nothing. I want to know what happened. Come on, Star Trek Picard. This is the question that we need answered. It is great to watch a group of actors doing their thing and having fun. I feel like everybody was having a good time in this one. The doctor was cool and comfortable, even flicked some fun back and forth with Worf. It was great. Honestly, they were probably just relieved that they didn't have to learn all the Trekno babble. The guest star in this one that played Dr. Farallon, Ellen Bry, oh, she had a huge job. The life of a guest actor can be rough. Week to week, you work in different universes and you have to show up like you've been there all along. And she was amazing at this. I mean, I mean, listen to this one. Is it true that your computational speed is limited only by the physical separation of your positronic links? Wow, I mean, that is a mouthful. And she's rocking it like she's been talking that way since college. Bry was a regular on St. Elsewhere in the early 80s as a nurse, Shirley Daniels. And I think that she had a lot of practice rocking all that medical jargon, and that set her up perfectly for Star Trek. Like I said, Lower Decks picked up this story and took it to the next level. This episode ends with the exocomps as heroes. It's super cool, but Lower Decks took that moment, moved it ahead about 10 years, and showed us fully sentient, fully aware exocomps. You're all just jealous of my advanced intelligence. You know who I should have called? The Borg. They're brilliant, yeah, but seems they may still be honing those social skills. Two gripes on this one. First, I think they might have only had like 30 minutes of actual content. There was lots of stretching for time. There's a whole side storyline of this unexplained tension between LaForge and Farallon that never really goes anywhere, but it takes up a good chunk of time. And then just lots of long, lingering shots. Some of these, like when they send the exocomp off into a dangerous situation to see how it reacts, those are cool. They set up the tension of this episode really well. But others, ugh, they just kind of slowed the whole thing down. And finally, what was up with Riker? I could disconnect their command pathways before I programmed them. Do it. Picard and LaForge are in danger, and he doesn't even hesitate to send these possible life forms off to their certain death? Eh, it's way off brand in my opinion. Command codes verified. I am not a philosopher. At best, I do armchair philosophy. So I'm not going to dive into the deep philosophical questions that this episode poses, like, what is life? Yeah, I'm going to leave that to people smarter than me. If you're interested in pondering questions like this, I cannot recommend the podcast Philosophize This by Stephen West enough. Hello, everyone. I'm Stephen West. This is Philosophize This. It is amazing. What I am going to talk about, though, is decision making. How do you make a decision? At its core, once you look past the philosophical musings in this, 
This episode is about Picard making a big decision. We're going to look at the steps he takes and that you can take to make an informed decision. We're also going to revisit the scene where Data stands up to Riker and talk about doing the right thing and putting the mission ahead of yourself. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. First, I have to say that this episode did pose an ethical question, and I want to explore it a little bit. I'm not sure that this was intentional, but it was very apparent to me. Humanity has long oppressed others. The people that aren't the same as the ruling class are exploited and oppressed. This can be as benign, which which is probably too weak a word because it's not really benign, but it can be as benign as taxation and as extreme as complete dehumanization. In the history of the United States, we have a very disappointing track record on this. One of the arguments in support of slavery was that they were less than human. Many slave masters considered that what they were doing was benevolent. Those people aren't capable of taking care of themselves. Their owners did that for them. Ugh, feels gross even saying that. But we just didn't see slaves as people, generally speaking. No, we saw them as tools. Just like the mule, the horse, and the rest of the livestock. A living, but less than human tool. People would use language that helped to reinforce this. And we hear some of that in this episode. Like any mechanical devices, they occasionally malfunction. Dr. Farallon says this to justify scrapping the exocomps when they started to develop sentience. Now, this would be one thing if this was all in the past and we had moved beyond that chapter, but, but it still happens. We still see people as less than all the time. And I don't just mean personally. Like one person sees another person as less than. I, I mean, that happens, but I mean foundationally, fundamentally. I've worked hard over the last few years to adapt my hiring and recruitment strategies to make them more equitable, specifically so people with intellectual and developmental disabilities can compete and have a real opportunity at employment. I've had a lot of success in doing this, and I am so, so very proud of the people that I get to work with because of this. But it wasn't easy. Organizationally, we saw these people as less than. Their needs for accommodations weren't viewed as just giving people the tools they need to do their job. No, instead, we had a ridiculously bureaucratic infrastructure for them to work through. Even though we had a core value of embracing diversity, our internal policies and processes made it nearly impossible to actually live that. I had to work embarrassingly hard to convince HR and others that these people were people, period. I mean, we all know that academically, right? Like a person is a person, but actually putting that into practice seems to be a real challenge for people. Doubts that they could do the job, concerns that accommodations would be distracting or create a me too, me too mentality in the office were abound. I mean, I had to justify some of those most basic needs. Now, fast forward past that work, and I can tell story after story of people with disabilities in the programs I manage having wild success, improving our metrics, our KPIs, and enriching our culture, which is cool, but it is still shocking to me at how hard it was for an organization to embrace it. 
That happens in this episode as well. Data is me. He sees and knows the exocomps are more than just tools, more than just robots that could cause problems if left unchecked. He has to convince a brilliant specialist in her field and the senior staff of a ship whose very mission is to seek out new life that they have indeed found it and they need to treat them right. I love how he hits the nail right on the head. And there is a big difference between data and a tool. Doctor, there is a big difference between you and a virus, but both are alive. You tell him, Data. <laughs> what Data was doing here was standing up not only for what his organization says their mission is, but really for what is right. Knowing what is right and actually doing what is right are often two very different things. To do the right thing, you often have to take a serious risk. Here's a story I like telling about a time that I took a stand. Fair warning, it's super corporate, bureaucratic. I've tried to make it pretty applicable to any industry here, but I mean, just know that in this example, I'm not advocating for an emergent sentient species or anything, right? This is just an example, a real life example that I think helps make the point. A program I managed used to send secure data to employers as part of their pre-hire screening. It was this weird thing where we would make the go, no-go decision for some, and for others, we would send the information to them to make the decision. Now, I didn't make those rules, but I did work to change them. My team was frustrated. The employers would often make decisions contrary to my teams, and those decisions would rarely stand up to any scrutiny. Like, these people simply should not have been getting certified for what they were doing. In fact, their decisions were putting people's finances in jeopardy and in many cases, compromising their physical safety as well. The leadership in the organization agreed with me and the team that this was bad business, but they didn't have the political will to push back. It was frustrating to see the right thing, protecting the people the employers we certified served, but not being able to actually do it. That is, until something bad happened. Now, thank goodness nobody got hurt. It wasn't anything bad like that, but, but it was still no good. You see, this major employer had a data breach, including the secure data we had provided them. This was my opening. This was my opportunity. I went right to work executing the plan my team and I had already put together, hoping for this day to come. I met with employers, their associations, politicians, and leaders in my organization. I was able to demonstrate that even though this would result in an 11% increase in workload for my team, we could take it on with no delays, no interruptions in our service delivery, and that we could ensure the security of the data. It would cost nothing and solve everything. Almost everyone loved it. I was, I was surprised. I was shocked when some of the employers stepped forward to support me. It turns out this was an extra workload and a liability they neither wanted nor were they trained to handle. But, well, there's always one, isn't there? And this one was one of the biggest fish in the pond. This one had clout. This one had elected officials that they'd helped to fund and they weren't afraid to lean on them. Well, they called our CEO. And not long after that call, she called me and my boss into her office. She ripped me up one side and down the other. Quick peek into the future on this one. This CEO is not with the organization much longer after this, right? Her aspirations beyond this role were, well, 
influencing her decision-making. Okay, back to the story. So she's ripping me up. Can't believe I would make a decision like this for one, and for two, not go through her to do it. Now keep in mind, this is a multi-billion dollar company, and I was managing one tiny, tiny little service in there. Had I come to her, I would have been ripped up for wasting her time on such a small thing. But because the big dog had barked, she was healing. I walked out of her office with my boss. My boss, who is an incredible person that I'm still in touch with to this day, said this was bad stuff and she wasn't sure that she was going to be able to do much to protect me. So I really had two choices. I could stick the course and likely get fired or I could back down and go back to the way things were. This wasn't an easy choice. Like, I would love to sit here and tell you that I didn't even hesitate to do the right thing, but I did. This was a good job. It was a job that I was really good at and I, and I enjoyed it. I didn't know if I wanted to put it all on the line for this. I spoke with a mentor of mine about it and then I slept on it. I had a lot to consider. Not only was most everyone excited for this change, but backing down would be letting my team down. This was something they wanted and had made the case that this, this is what they were meant to do. So knowing that my number one job, my number one responsibility is to my team and knowing that I was doing the right thing. I mean, one of our corporate values was data integrity. So I decided to stick the course. I met with the CEO and I told her we were making the change on the schedule I had already committed to. I prepared information and data and appealed to her better judgment that this was not only the right thing to do, but the only thing we could do if we believed anything we said about who we were and what we valued. I will never forget the feeling in my stomach and right at the back of my tongue, right? Because it dried right up when I looked her in the eyes. I said to her, if this means you have to fire me, then fire me. I don't want to work for a company that is a total and absolute hypocrite. You can't fire me. I quit. Got up and walked out. I slowly made my way to a drinking fountain and then out to my car. I slowly, calmly opened the door, sat down, closed the door, and proceeded to cry like a three-year-old child. It took a lot for me to do that. I took a few minutes to collect myself, clean myself up. When I got back to my desk, there was a sticky note on the monitor that said, I'm okay with the plan. And that was it. The CEO and I never spoke of that again. And about two months later, she was gone. Good riddance to bad rubbish. I worked really closely with my boss and my team to make good on our commitments and we did it. They rocked it. I have some other cool stories from the fallout from this that I'll save for, for more appropriate episodes. But this was a banner moment for me and a massive win for the people I worked with. Now, I shared this story for a few reasons. First, I want you to know that I know this, right? I have been here before. Not, not to the scale data is, and likely not to the scale that some of you have had to be at, but I know what this feels like. Secondly, it is important for you to know that this is hard, like really hard. You're going to read about standing up for what's right. And you'll probably hear other people tell their stories about it. What they're not going to tell you in those books or in those talks or in those presentations is how you can feel a 900 pound weight in your gut when you're doing this or how your tongue 
feels like it doubled in size and is coated with sandpaper. One of the most common mouth symptoms of anxiety is dry mouth. Or how you will doubt every word you said and every breath you took. To truly put yourself on the line, to take a real risk for what is right is hard and it takes real courage. It is also the responsibility of every single one of us. Data puts his career on the line too. Riker, for some reason, decides to ignore all the evidence and Starfleet's view on new life and transport the exocomps to certain death to hopefully save Picard and LaForge. So Data shuts down the transporters. Riker leans into him and Data makes no bones about it. He knows he's disobeying an order and he knows there's gonna be consequences. If you don't do it, I will relieve you of duty. That is your prerogative, sir. But he knows it's the right thing to do. I don't have a crystal ball and I can't see the future. I can't sit here and tell you that when you put it all on the line for what's right, that everything is gonna turn out okay. In fact, I can promise you it's probably not gonna turn out okay. At least, at least not in the short term. But if you're a leader, you're going to do what is right, even when there's a personal risk, period. A place where we as leaders are most often asked to take risk though, personal or otherwise, is when we're asked to make decisions. In fact, I could almost say that one of the primary things that makes a person a leader is their ability to make decisions. In my experience, I've made decisions quickly and I've made decisions after thinking about them a lot. And both of those are fine. In fact, in fact, I found that by following these guidelines I'm about to share, you can make super effective decisions in a very short amount of time. There's actually almost never been a time where waiting to make a decision was the right decision to make. Just follow these guidelines and make the decision. Boom, just like that. One of my primary guiding principles in decision-making is to gather multiple and diverse points of view. Gather your information from people that are close to the point at hand. Picard does this here by directly engaging Jordy. Ms. LaForge, what are your thoughts? He trusts the person with the most expertise to assess the situation, and then he listens to their opinion. He also has data on the team to look at what is going on. He's interested in having different people with different skill sets providing their input on the matter. But that's not all. He doesn't only rely on the input of others. He goes to the Gemba. I have agreed to tour the station and assess the situation personally. He's gonna go where the work is happening, armed with information from the experts he works with to assess the situation himself. The Gemba is a Japanese word used in lean daily management. It simply means the place. It's the place where work actually happens. As a manager, I'll take Gemba walks where I go and I observe the work. Sometimes I'll go on these walks with an expert, like maybe the supervisor for the area, and sometimes I'll go on my own. But I will always, absolutely always, talk to the people that are hands-on. No reports, no emails, no stories can show you and teach you what the person actually performing these tasks can. When you need to make a decision, getting as close as possible is invaluable. So two guidelines so far, gather information from diverse points of view, right? Listen to the people with expertise in the area. Second, get as close as you can to the work being impacted. Go to the Gemba. 
The third guideline is to get to the root of the question being asked or the problem being presented. In the 36th episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, where we watched DS9's Things Past, I talked about the five whys as a way to get to the root cause. In the 46th episode, TOS's Wink of an Eye, I talked about fishbone diagrams. There are other great tools too. Pareto charts, creativity dice, SWOT analyses. Today's whiteboard session is putting your SWOT to use. And squid diagrams are a few that come to mind, but all of them focus on the same thing. Be open to new information and seek the root cause. This way, your decision will actually matter. Picard is faced with this as Dr. Farallon is struggling to keep the mining tech sustainably powered. She offers some ideas like using the exocomps, right? That could help address the problem, but it's going to take more time. Picard understands, though, that the new information that could come from this could get closer to the actual performance of this tech, allowing him to make a stronger decision. I don't think that 48 hours is too much time to risk, particularly when the gains are so substantial. And then the fourth guideline. Be sure you have communicated your decision. Everyone knows Picard is responsible for making this decision, and they know that he has a timeline to communicate that. Captain, I know you're supposed to give your evaluation to Starfleet today. If you make a decision and don't tell anybody about it, have you really made a decision at all? So let's recap. Four basic guidelines to steer you to solid decisions. Gather information from diverse viewpoints. Get as close to the work or the problem as possible. Address the root problem or question and be sure that everyone knows you've made the decision. A lot of people get overwhelmed and intimidated when they need to make a decision, but it's so much easier than you think. The last nugget of wisdom I want to leave you with is from Neil Peart from Rush. In their 1979 hit Limelight on Permanent Waves, Neil writes, If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. We make decisions all the time. You've got this. You've got this. And believe me, if you are a person that makes decisions at all, but especially decisions following these guidelines, you will be well-respected and highly effective in anything that you do. There is nothing I like more than interacting with you. I love when you reach out via social media or through email. I'd like to ask you to take a moment and open that possible interaction up to others as well. Wherever you're listening right now, there is a share button. It's usually on the top or bottom right of your podcast app. Well, hit that share button and send this podcast to someone that can benefit from it. It would mean the world to me, and I can't wait to meet whomever you've shared this with. And you can always reach out to me online, right? I'm on Twitter at SFLA Podcast and most of the other social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T. as in testing for life. A-K-I-N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. The fourth episode of the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, Behind the Lines. This one is deep in the Dominion storyline. At this point, the Dominion has captured DS9 and is calling it Tarok Nor. We spend time with Kira and some of the others that have been left behind on the station. Behind the lines. See what they did there? This episode has one of my favorite cold opens in the entire franchise, and I cannot wait to get into it with you. 
Until then, ex astra scientia. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Electricast.